Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 34, The Sea of Galilee. Last week, I covered the history of Zor. The city spared the destruction that befell Sodom and Gomorrah. If you missed it, you really should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm covering the history and geography of the Sea of Galilee. So let's get started. The Sea of Galilee is also known by the names Kinneret, Lake of Gennesaret, or Lake Tiberias. It is a large freshwater lake in Israel, about 33 miles or 53 kilometers in circumference. From north to south, it's close to 13 miles or 21 kilometers long, and just over 8 miles or 13 kilometers wide. Its surface area is a hair over 64 square miles or close to 167 square kilometers when it's full. The lake's deepest point is 141 feet, which equates to 43 meters. So let me put those measurements in perspective. In terms of surface area, if it were in the U.S., it would be the 78th largest lake. Not that noteworthy. Surprisingly, if it were in Europe, it would also be the 78th largest lake. And yes, I did double-check the figures. It's just a coincidence. The Sea of Galilee contains just under a cubic mile of water, which is about 4 cubic kilometers. That volume would make it the 44th largest lake in the U.S. I couldn't find a listing of the volumes of European lakes, so there's no comparison there. But overall, my point is that except for its extremely important historical location, it's not that remarkable. Having said that, there is one small tidbit that does set the Sea of Galilee apart from any other lake. Its surface level varies with the seasons, and depending on if the climate is abnormally wet or dry, it is usually between 686 and 705 feet below sea level. For those of you on the metric system, this is between 209 and 215 meters below sea level. This makes it the lowest freshwater lake on Earth and the second lowest lake in the world, second only to its downstream neighbor, the saltwater Dead Sea. The lake receives water partly by underground springs, but primarily from the Jordan River, which flows through it from north to south. The Sea of Galilee is situated in present-day northeast Israel, between the Golan Heights and the Galilee region in the Jordan Rift Valley. Like I've mentioned before, the Rift Valley was caused by the separation of the African and Arabian plates. Consequently, the area is subject to earthquakes and, in the past, volcanic activity. This is evident by the abundant basalt and other igneous rocks that characterize the geology of the Sea of Galilee. The lake has been called by different names throughout its history, usually depending on the dominant settlement on its shores. As empires came and went, and ethnic groups ebbed and flowed, the name of the lake changed as well. The lake is currently called Kinneret, a name that originates in the Hebrew Bible. Remember that the Hebrew Bible is also the primary source of the Christian Old Testament. In the Hebrew Bible, the lake is referred to as the Sea of Kinneret in Numbers chapter 34 verse 11 and Joshua chapter 13 verse 27. But more frequently used translations have a different take. The New International Version for those passages refers to it as the Sea of Galilee as we would expect. However, both the King James and the New Revised Standard Version use the name Chinnereth. Adding to the confusion, just two chapters earlier in Joshua, the King James and New Revised Standard Version changed the spelling to Chinneroth. The name Kinnerotus can be found on cuneiform tablets in Ugarit, an ancient port that is in modern-day Syria. 
a town called Chinnereth was listed among the fenced cities in Joshua chapter 19, verse 35. It's probably a safe assumption that a fenced city had some sort of wall protecting it, and that the city that shares the name with a lake is probably located beside the lake. There is the belief in some circles that the origin of the name Kinneret is related to the Hebrew word Kinnor, which means harp or lyre, probably meaning the shape of the lake. Researchers, however, believe that the origin lies with the important bronze and Iron Age city of Kinneret. This city and its name predate the arrival of the Hebrews to the area. Much like the rumor that Shakespeare wrote Psalm 46 in the King James Version, the timing of this theory is too far off for it to be true. The city of Kinneret was identified with Tel Oriama by Gustav Dahlman in 1921 and William Foxwell Albright in 1923. Having said that about the naming, there is no evidence either way that the city was named after the lake or vice versa. Throughout the Old and New Testament, the body of water is referred to as a sea. Except for Dr. Luke, who calls it the Lake of Gennesaret in chapter 5, verse 1. Surprisingly, in this location, all three versions used for this podcast, the King James, the New International, and the New Revised Standard, all use the same phrase. The Babylonian Talmud, as well as Flavius Josephus, as a reminder he was a 1st century AD Jewish Roman scholar, mention the lake by the name of Sea of Genosar. It is thought that this name also referred to the small fertile agricultural area of Genosar that is situated on the western bank of the lake. It is thought that the name Genosar is also related to the name Kinneret. It is in the New Testament that the phrase the Sea of Galilee makes its first appearance. Well, except for the previously mentioned part in the New International Version. The phrase is used in Matthew, Mark, and John. In fact, John, in chapter 6, verse 1, calls it, and this is a quote, the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. All three versions referenced in this podcast phrase it in a similar fashion. The Sea of Tiberias was the name used in the late 1st century AD. This reference aids in the dating of the writing of John's Gospel. The name Sea of Tiberias, for what it's worth, is also the name mentioned in Roman text and in the Jerusalem Talmud. It was even used in Arabic, in a phrase similar to the phrase Lake Tiberias. The body of water was also referred to as the Sea of Minya in Arabic during Islamic rule from the Umayyad through the Maluk period roughly from the 7th through the 16th centuries A.D. In 1989 A.D., artifacts of a hunter-gatherer site were found under the water at the southern end of the lake. Also, the remnants of mud huts were found, making these the oldest known buildings in the world. The site is commonly referred to as Ohalo, and is one of the best-preserved hunter-gatherer archaeological sites of the last glacial maximum. When was that? Well, the artifacts have been radiocarbon dated to about 17,000 BC, their date, not mine. The site is significant because of the numerous fruit and cereal grain remains preserved there. In general, intact ancient plant remains are exceedingly rare finds, since they generally decompose quickly. One of the buildings housed over 90,000 seeds. It is theorized that after Ohelo had been occupied for a relatively short amount of time, probably only a few generations, the village burned to the ground. It is unclear if the burning was intentional or accidental, 
and apparently the burning and subsequent abandonment coincided with a rising water level in the lake. After the water covered the site, fine clay and silt layers settled over the artifacts, and in this was little to no oxygen, which preserved the seeds. There are two possible sources for the rising lake level. First, it could have been caused by an increase in global temperature at the end of the Ice Age. Also, an earthquake could have changed the course of some of the water flowing into the Sea of Galilee. Like I mentioned before, the site was discovered in 1989 when an extended drought caused a 30-foot or 9-meter drop in water levels. Also, during a routine underwater sonar scan in 2003, archaeologists discovered an enormous conical stone structure. This structure has a diameter of about 230 feet or 70 meters, and is made of boulders and stones. The ruins are estimated to be between 2,000 and 12,000 years old, and are about 33 feet or 10 meters underwater. The estimated weight of the monument is over 60,000 tons. Researchers believe the site to be a burial monument, and is similar to sites in Europe. No one, though, has explained how it ended up underwater, especially if we go with the short end of the age range and it's only 2,000 years old. The Sea of Galilee lies on the ancient trade route between Egypt, Sirius, Anatolia, and Mesopotamia. Subsequently, the Greeks, Hasmoneans, and Romans founded flourishing towns on the landlocked lake, including Hippos and Tiberias. Flavius Josephus was so overwhelmed by the area that he wrote, quoting, one may call this place the ambition of nature. Quite unshockingly for anyone familiar with the New Testament, Josephus reported a prosperous fishing community at this time, with 230 boats regularly working in the lake. Archaeologists discovered one such boat in 1986. This boat has been dated to between 120 BC and 40 AD based on radiocarbon methods. The pottery found on the boat, which included a cooking pot and a lamp, along with nails and hull construction techniques, place the date to between 50 BC and 50 AD. The remains of the boat are 27 feet or just over 8 meters long, 7.5 feet or 2.3 meters wide, and with a maximum preserved height of 4.3 feet or 1.3 meters. A picture will be posted. The boat's construction is similar to other boats built in that part of the Mediterranean during the period between 100 BC and 200 AD. It was constructed primarily of cedar planks, similar to what many believed were used on the Ark. But the boat is composed of ten different wood types, implying either a wood shortage or that the boat was made of scrap wood and had undergone extensive and repeated repairs. It was joined together by pegged mortise and tenon joints and nails. Such were the methods of the carpenters of the era and show how carpenters were connected with fishermen. The boat draws little water with its flat bottom, which allowed it to get very close to the shore while fishing. The boat was rowable with four staggered rowers and also had a mast for sailing. Now going back to the New Testament, much of the ministry of Jesus occurred on the shores of the lake. At that time, there was a continuous ring of developed settlements and villages on the lake's perimeter, and much trade conducted via boat. The Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke tell of how Jesus recruited four of his apostles from the shores of Lake Galilee, namely Simon, Andrew, John, and James. His most famous sermon, the one on the mount, is thought to have taken place on a hill overlooking the lake. 
Also, many of the miracles are believed to have occurred on or near the lake. These events are such as his walking on water, calming the storm, the disciples in the boatload of fish, and his feeding of 5,000 people. Outside of the Bible, in 135 AD, when Bar Kokhba's revolt was put down, the Romans responded by banning all Jews from Jerusalem. The center of Jewish culture and learning shifted from Jerusalem to the region of the Galilee and the Kinneret, particularly the city of Tiberias. After this shift, and in this region, the Jerusalem Talmud was compiled. The lake's importance waned when the Byzantines lost control and the area was conquered by the Umayyad Caliphate and subsequent Islamic empires. With the exception of Tiberias, the major towns and cities in the area were slowly abandoned. In 1187, Saladin defeated the armies of Crusaders at the Battle of Hattin, mostly because he was able to cut the Crusaders off from the valuable fresh water of the Sea of Galilee. There will be more on this much later. Also, what follows is not as much related to the history of Christianity as it is to the history of Judaism, but it allows a little insight into how the region got to be the way it is today, and it's by no means comprehensive. Throughout the early Ottoman Empire, the lake was of little importance. The city of Tiberias did see a revival of its Jewish community in the 16th century, but then it gradually declined again. This decline lasted until 1660 when the city was completely destroyed. In the early 18th century, Tiberias was rebuilt by Zara al-Umar, an Arab ruler over northern Palestine. After its rebuilding, it became the center of his rule over Galilee, and also saw a revival of its Jewish community. In 1909, Jewish innovators established the first cooperative farming village known as a kibbutz, specifically named Kavutzad Kinneret, and this was in the immediate vicinity of the lake. The settlement taught Jewish immigrants farming and agriculture. In 1917, the British defeated the Ottoman Turkish forces and took control of Palestine, while at the same time, France took over Syria. Immediately after this, the two European countries proceeded to divide the area. In their agreement, Britain retained control of Palestine and France held Syria. In doing so, they had to establish a border between the two regions and agreed that the line would run across the middle of the lake. But in 1920, the boundary was moved. Zionists pressured the French and British to assign as many water sources as possible to Palestine during the negotiations. Herbert Samuel, the High Commissioner of Palestine, sought full control of the Sea of Galilee. In the end, the negotiations led to the Palestinian territory including the whole Sea of Galilee, both sides of the Jordan River, Lake Hula, Dan Spring, and part of Yarmouk. The final border approved in 1923 followed a 33-foot or 10-meter wide strip along the lake's northeastern shore, cutting off Syria, aka the state of Damascus, from the lake. But, the British and French agreement provided that existing rights over the use of the waters of the Jordan by the inhabitants of Syria would be maintained. Also, the government of Syria would have the right to construct a new pier at Smek on the lake or to cooperatively use the existing pier. Further, there would be no restrictions placed on people or goods passing between the lake and Syria. This also included the exclusion of custom regulations. Finally, the agreement held that the Syrians and Lebanese would have the same fishing and navigation rights on Lakes Hula, Galilee, and the Jordan River. 
but the government of Palestine would be responsible for policing of the lakes and waterways. This all changed, though, later. On May 15, 1948, Syria invaded the one-day-old state of Israel, gaining control over territory along the Sea of Galilee. The next year, an armistice agreement between Israel and Syria was signed, allowing Syria to occupy the northeast shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. The agreement, though, stated that the armistice line was, quoting, not to be interpreted as having any relation whatsoever to ultimate territorial arrangements. A curious statement indeed. In seemingly acknowledging it was only temporary, Syria remained in possession of the lake's northeast shoreline until the 1967 Arab-Israeli War. In the 1950s, Israel formulated a plan to link the lake with the rest of the country in order to supply water to the growing population. The pipeline was completed in 1964. It transports water from the lake to the population centers of Israel and has previously supplied most of the country's potable water. Currently, though, the lake supplies approximately 10% of Israel's drinking water needs. In fact, today the country gets about half of its water through reclamation and desalination. In 1964, Syria attempted construction of what is referred to as the Headwater Diversion Plan that would have blocked the flow of water into the Sea of Galilee. Obviously, this would have greatly reduced the water flow into the lake. This project and Israel's attempts to block it in 1965 partially contributed to the regional tensions that culminated in the 1967 Six-Day War. During the war, Israel captured the Golan Heights, which contained some of the sources of water of the Sea of Galilee. Increasing water demand in Israel, Lebanon, and Jordan, as well as dry winters, have resulted in stress on the lake and have caused periodic perilously low water levels. When the water level is low, the lake is at risk of becoming salinized by the saltwater springs under the lake. Under normal conditions, the weight of the water over top of these springs prevents the inflow of the saltwater. But when the water level decreases, so does the weight, and saltwater can begin to flow in. Under the terms of a peace treaty between Israel and Jordan, Israel supplies Jordan with water from the lake. On its shores, farmers grow bananas, dates, mangoes, grapes, and olives. The warm waters of the Sea of Galilee have yielded a bountiful catch for over 2,000 years. The catch includes a number of fish species such as the Kinneret brim. This fish is actually quite small, usually measuring in the neighborhood of 5.5 inches or 14 centimeters. Thankfully, there are other, larger fish regularly caught in the lake. These include the Tristamella simonus and the Mango tilapia which in the area is referred to as St. Peter's fish. The Tristamella simenos is usually about 10 inches or 25 centimeters long. Interestingly, it has no relatives anywhere else in the world. A related fish species that was unique to the lake, Tristamella sacra, used to spawn in the marsh, but has not been seen since the droughts that hit the region in the 1990s. The mango tilapia is about 16 inches or 41 centimeters long and can weigh up to 3.5 pounds or 1.6 kilograms. It is a widespread species that is found in lakes, rivers, and other fresh or brackish waters. It is usually found in northern and central Africa, including surprisingly Saharan oases. Outside of Africa, it is found in Syria, Jordan, and Israel. It is these two fish, along with presumed extinct sacra, 
that were probably the fish caught by the apostles in the New Testament. And with that is the Sea of Galilee. Next week, I plan on covering the geography of the Dead Sea. You don't want to miss it. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they're released. And do me one more favor. Go to iTunes and give the podcast a positive review. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.